0: Australia is not a secular country. It is a free country.
1: What are the Liberal Party's policy failures? What are they misreading or, or um, failing to look after the right-wing base in this election, which which will cost them votes?
0: OK. Well, I think part of the pragmatism in the Liberal Party stems from the fact that it's the middle-class party. And those of us who are middle-class are polite. We don't like to upset other people. Um, and that means to a certain extent that we avoid arguments. Uh, Tony Abbott stood out because he was a middle-class person who was happy to have arguments. Um, The result of not wanting to have arguments and that middle-class base is that there's a lot of people in the party who aren't in touch with the broader base um, and basically get wedged by the ALP. The ALP set up a series of, or the Greens, a series of parameters, and these people aren't adept at arguing themselves out of those parameters. And once you accept those parameters, then it leads inevitably to a particular conclusion which you are on the wrong side of. Mm. Also, I think partly uh, is a result of the class, or sorry, the occupational background of a lot of the, Members of Parliament from the, uh, the Liberal Party that they're not from occupations where you're out there arguing and, and trying to change the parameters so you can win the argument. Whereas on the ALP side, you know, they're trade union backgrounds, school teachers, people like that. Mm. Um, they're used to indoctrination, certainly having ideological um, arguments and, and, and fighting for their case. So that then means that, for example, you know, 18C never got repealed, even though there's a lot of people uh, around Australia who believe that you shouldn't be able to uh, be pulled up for hurting somebody's Hurting feelings. someone's feelings. Yeah, mm. exactly right. Um, we've signed on to net zero by 2050. There's a lot of people who have problems with the... Um, if not with the climate change argument, with the policies being adopted to deal with it. Two separate groups there really. Um, The Liberal Party won seats in central Queensland on the basis of support for fossil fuels. Uh, A lot of those people must be feeling a bit nervous now um, that this net zero by 2050 is going to mean the end of their industry and and their livelihood. What else haven't they stood up? Well, religious discrimination, you know. Scott Morrison said he was going to legislate for it. He didn't. He kind of tried, but it was watered down pretty much by then because of the the more moderate, more middle class, less wanting to have an argument, you know, not wanting to upset people, hurt their feelings. Um, COVID, you know, we saw them basically ditch economic Discipline in favour of helping anyone who said they needed to be helped and throwing money relatively indiscriminately around. Mm. You know, the the cost of um, funding COVID measures was about 800 billion, according to the Parliamentary Budget Office, when you factored in extra debt and so on by 2030. 800 billion when you scale it back as a percentage of the GDP is similar to what one year's worth of funding the war was in World War II. Um, that has upset a lot of uh, rusted on, previously rusted on, the voters. Uh, it also cuts across the negative, uh, uh, sorry, cuts across the um, perception that this is the party of low debt and low taxes. Um, and, you know, you've probably seen some United Australia Party ads Pointing out just how much the debt has grown under this this government, so it's lacked. Um, it's cannon
1: fodder for the alternative right wing parties.
0: Um, that's right. Um, on defence, it's done okay. It's done better than the other side, but is it doing well enough? No, I don't think it is. You know, ordering nuclear subs that aren't going to turn up till we've gone net zero um, doesn't sound like a very good defense strategy to me when you know that the challenge to us is likely to be in the next 10 years. You know, those subs. And that they're going to rely on um, uh, rare earths that the Chinese have got a monopoly on. You know, you can't ring up your your strategic uh, competitor and say, uh, look, would you mind sending me some more of those things so I can be more competitive with you? It's not going to happen. Yeah. Um, So, um, yeah, there's, there's a, f- a few areas where I think they've, they've fallen down in terms of where the vast bulk of uh, their voters are. I don't think they've also grappled with the fact that, as in the US, there's been a, a change in the, the class base of their vote, so that they're more likely these days to be comfortable in some working-class, lower-middle-class seats than they are in the really high-end seats.
1: This is a problem. Uh, Matt Canavan's identified this very clearly and and he's certainly able to be in the vanguard of, of where the Liberal Party should be going. And he's identified that the Liberal Party trying to hold on to inner-city blue-ribbon seats is a fool's game because um, the inner-city demographic has very hardly very uh, firmly moved towards green votes, whereas the working class, the blue collar, the, the regional people more than ever are feeling betrayed by the Labour-Green alliance and, and much easier pickings for Howard's battlers, uh, for Menzies' forgotten people, um, for you know, Morrison's quiet Australians. They're not in the cities anymore.
0: Yeah, well, it's partly a function of if you're going to live in the cities, especially in the inner cities, which have gentrified, you know, they used to have a big working class component, but that's gradually disappearing. Mm. Um, you have to be well educated because education is the most common way that people attain wealth and um, status in our um, society. You know, it's yep. not many people inherit it, some people do, but most people get it by... Either being in business or professions or yep. management. And the education system doesn't value free speech and common sense like it used to. Correct. Uh, whereas people out on the outskirts of town and in rural and regional areas, they're less likely to have been polluted by cultural studies or, you know, whatever.
1: Feminist interpretive dance. Yeah, theory.
0: yeah, yeah. All that sort of stuff. <laughs> um, and they're also more in touch with how the world actually works, um, because you know if you're on a farm, you've got to be across a whole range of things, from international markets to how your tractor works, um, to meteorology, to supply chains, etc., etc., etc. So you have a much more holistic and realistic view of the world than someone living in the city, uh, who you know might be. Uh, a barrister specialising in criminal law. Well, might give you an idea of criminal law, but doesn't necessarily tell you how that shrink wrap pack of meat got on the shelf. Yeah. Um, so you can believe some really silly things, like yeah. that we can just overnight power ourselves using wind and solar uh, without any sort of credible form of backup. Yeah. Um, so, so there there's a, a groundedness out in the suburbs and and outside that which there isn't in the inner city, which is not necessarily new. If you go back to Menzies in his Forgotten People speeches, he relates to that. Um, It's just that there's a slightly different class basis on it now. Um, So, you know, the Liberal Party perhaps has to face the fact it's not going to win some of its cherished seats, but that it may be exchanging those for seats that it would not have thought that it would win 20, 30 years ago?
1: I think they can swap seats. I don't think they need to lose seats as in numbers. Yeah, they're going to lose some seats, but I think they can pick up some seats that were previously Labor strongholds because of this change. And so I don't think there should be the renting of garments, sackcloth and ashes, because they lose the seat of Brisbane. Because, I mean, sure, we should be able to pick up some of the outer seats which you might not have been contenders for before that.
0: Yeah, but, you know, if you take the seat of Brisbane, there's still a lot of working-class people in there. And One of the things that I discovered in the Joe election win of 1974, which is now a long time ago, um, that in seats which... For the
1: record, prior to my time. Prior to your time. Prior to my first breath.
0: um, I was still at school, I'll say (laughs) in my defence, but looking at the figures uh, subsequently, Joe got huge votes in Labor strongholds like South Brisbane. So there was a one-term member, it was a Liberal member because the Nationals didn't run in South Brisbane, a member called Colin Lamont uh, for South Brisbane. And it's the only time... um, It's the only time, I think it's been held by someone who wasn't left of the the spectrum, it's now held by the Greens. There was a guy called Bill Lamond... Um, who won the uh, seat of um, Wynnum uh, in the same election. And I don't think it's ever been held by Right of Centre before or since. Um, So what you then realised was that some of these working class voters, given the right sort of right-wing candidate, uh, would actually vote for them because they were voting for class reasons. They weren't voting for ideological reasons. Um, So... There's still those sort of voters in seats like Brisbane, and the the right sort of Liberal campaign might lose some of the sort of trendier demographics, but might actually be able to pull some of those away from Labor. Um, So they don't necessarily have to give up on these seats. Um, But I think they need to more clearly articulate what it is that they offer that the Labor Party doesn't. And I don't think that they're doing that at the moment. I think that's a huge problem for them going into this election. Um, And uh, there's a group of voters who normally vote Liberal who are saying we think they actually need a a time in the the, uh, um, sin bin, maybe. Um, So it could be a bit similar to 1975, another election I suspect you weren't around for. Um, But that was Gough Whitlam's. Uh, 1972 sorry, Gough Whitlam's He lost in 75. Um, A lot of Liberals voted for Gough because they thought it was time that the Liberal Party had after um, 17 years or whatever it was in power had lost its reason for being in power and its energy and that it deserved some time out. Mm. Um, Gough was so bad and the time so difficult uh, that within three years he was out again and the Liberal Party was back in uh, with a landslide, historical landslide or historic. I
1: am optimistic that a season or two with Labor will be just what the doctor ordered for a the population and b uh, the Liberal Party.
0: Well there's, there are parallels between what's happening now and then because In 72, the Liberal Party was very centrist. Um, And um, uh, 75, Malcolm Fraser, who ran that election, while he got a reputation later for being a lefty because of uh, his policies or his his stand on um, refugees and and Aboriginal issues, 75 was seen as being a right-wing ideologue. and under the influence partly of Dr. David Kemp, uh, who had the so-called Kemp thesis, he actually tried to increase the difference between him and the Labor Party, rather than the policy before was to try and move into the centre. So it was kind of moving out to the edges. I, I uh, relate. <laughs> I, I don't know what this says about me, but I relate to Kemp. Kemp or Kemp? Kemp. The Kemp thesis.
1: I, I, I relate. Like chasing the center I, I think is foolish and dangerous um, I think distinguishing yourself from the alternative is the key to securing a majority
0: yeah well it's the it's the key to selling any product coke doesn't want to be coal uh, doesn't want to be Pepsi mm. wants to be coke um, uh, so yes um, so I think that's the way back for them uh, but I would have to confess I'm in the the camp that says I'm not really sure uh, whether they're different enough from Labor these days uh, and whether they haven't basically come to the end of the road in terms of this government and they need time to refresh.
1: I think every Liberal Party MP, whether in any of the states or in the Federal Party, whoever feels themselves resorting to the line, but we're not as bad as Labor,
0: or yeah. at least we're not Labor,
1: It needs to give himself an uppercut. Like, yeah, that yeah. has to be the moment Look, where you go,
0: oh, my God. Putting my pundits hat on. You know, I think they're going to lose this election. The signs are everywhere. Uh, Conchetta, fear, fear of anti-Wells speech in the Senate last night, I think. Uh, just another sign. The fact that the New South Wales Liberal Party hasn't managed to what pre-select its candidate. What did Conchetta say? Oh, she said Morrison was a bully. Um, so we've had all this concentration on uh, bullying in the Labor Party, and here you've got a, a Liberal senator bringing the focus back on the on the Liberal Party. Wow. Um, that is not going to be... It's the po- sort of stuff that happens when you're to falling, to piece, in her office today. falling to pieces at the seams. Um, I remember 1983, so I was on the federal executive in 1982 and the Joint Standing Committee on Policy, and we knew we were going to lose the 83 election. Uh, in fact, I ran in that election for the Liberal Party in the seat of Griffith. It required an 11% swing for me to, to win it. Uh, there was no way I was doing it because I thought I was going to be a Member of Parliament. I was doing it because the only person they could find to run was a 25-year-old young Liberal Federal Vice President who just happened to live in the seat and said, yeah, if you can't find anyone, I'll give it a go. Right. No one was under any illusions. That was you. That was me. Um, and at the Joint Standing Committee on Policy, you had people saying, well, why don't we do this and why don't we do that? And you say, but that wouldn't be responsible. And they'd say, yeah, but if they win, they'll be lumbered with it. And if we win, well, it's a bigger problem being out of out of power, so we'll do it. And I think with Julia Gillard and um, uh, the um, um, NDIS, that was another one of those well, I'm probably going to lose, but this will be a signature policy and I won't have to work out how to pay for it. (laughs) And I don't know whether you noticed, but in the budget, some of the biggest increase in budget outlays was in the NDIS. Uh, It was obviously going to be a monster. Uh, It took things that the states used to do away from them and centralised it and made it a sort of universal um, um, uh, right if you met certain criteria. And Uh once you do that, all sorts of people will end up making the criteria because they can and expanding yeah so so yeah i think there's a bit of they know they're going to lose so you you're seeing all this ill discipline and and things breaking out strengths and weaknesses
1: of the national party
0: well uh, the strength of the uh, the strength of the national party in a sense is that um it's a it's a vested interest more than it's a political party um the national party was originally formed Uh, by rural interests who wanted to lobby for benefits for rural industries. Uh, There's a split essentially within the National Party between the large-scale farmers and the agriculturalists. That's an historic one, so graziers, wheat. Uh, They tend to think a certain way. They tend to be international in perspective because they're more likely to be exporting. Whereas if you're running um, an orchard somewhere, Uh, your market's more likely to be local, you're more likely to be limited in terms of your capital, etc. So there's sort of the two um, industry-based, or or, broadly based within the party. These guys are protectionists, the other guys uh, tend to be free trade. So there's been that tension in the National Party, but they tend to be more of the protectionists because there's more of those sorts of farms. Uh, So they've tended to dominate. Uh, The National Party has been decreasing in influence because the countryside has been depopulating because the only way you can make money out of rural produce is by increasing your productivity and that means increasing mechanisation. So the large rural workforces, uh, which after the DLP split were the backbone of the Queensland National Party, they've gradually been moving to the, the cities where they've just become absorbed and um, the Liberal Party has also, uh, well in Victoria they've always been competitive with the National Party, just because of the nature of rural industry down there. Uh, in New South Wales there's been competition with, with Liberals owning country seats. In Queensland, uh, with the exception of Groom, uh, which the Liberal Party has fairly reliably held, but sometimes the Nationals, the Nationals have held the rural seats outside the the city. Um, So, the the Nats tend to be more prone to auction policies than not. So, you know, they were terribly against net uh, zero by 2050 and then suddenly they're all in favour of it because they get a couple of cabinet positions and so on. frustrating. Yeah. So, you know, if you live in a rural electorate, um, then you've probably got some traditional uh, ties to the National Party and you can rely that they'll put your interest ahead of anyone else's and their own above both. Uh, That's not too cynical. Uh, So, and I think that's another reason why their vote's sort of gradually been declining because um, you can't in the modern era justify that sort of politics too well. Let's talk about
1: the strengths and weaknesses of the One Nation party and policy offerings. Okay,
0: so One Nation, uh, in a sense, they get into that group. That's where they start. That's where the heartland is, that that group which is becoming the new heartland of the Liberal Party, which is the outer suburbs and the rural and regional areas. Uh, Pauline Hanson, small businesswoman, fish and chip shop owner uh, from Ipswich, working class town, Originally manufacturing town and coal mines, uh, her vote strongest in Queensland initially, um, and it was outer suburban areas did no good in the the inner areas, didn't do very well with older people on the Golden Sunshine Coast. So, um, but but more working class, uh, particularly male, uh, in the the outer so areas like we're in here, Woodridge, um, her vote sort of then would peak somewhere around the Brisbane Valley and and there was a a peak up behind Cairns on the the Tablelands and somewhere around Meribarra and and places like that there was also a bit of a peak. As it flowed up the Great Divide and went over the top it would then start declining as you got out into the more um, um, grazing type large scale agricultural areas where people had a different mindset. so she got a lot of working-class people as, and traditional Labor voters as well as traditional Liberal voters, which is why a 45-55 split was pretty common. So mm. even though ALP would disown her, uh, a lot of their voters, erstwhile voters, were actually voting for her. Mm. Uh, and she didn't make that big a difference because a 45-55 split gives the Libs just a 10% advantage. It's not that much. Um, She was originally um, almost a personality cult rather than a political party. Mm, Um, And the party organisation was set up so that she ultimately had all control. Um, She had members and she had supporters. And a lot of people who thought they were members were actually supporters and they got no say in what happened. Uh, I think it's more democratic these days. Initially, her policy positions would have been mainstream in 1960s Australia, which I think is why she appealed to an older kind of working class, less educated demographic. Um, So she was a protectionist. Um, She was in favor of um, uh, regulation. Uh, She really didn't get the free market. Um, Socially conservative. she um, um, also, you know, had a lot of policies that well, echoes of white Australia, which again was abolished in I think about nineteen sixty-seven by the effectively by the, the Liberal Party. Uh, but before that, you know, it was Australia for the, the white man and that was across both uh, parties. You know, can you imagine if a politician today cracked a joke like, two wongs don't make a white? Uh, which a Labour Prime Minister did—you'd be cancelled immediately by both sides. <laughs> Wouldn't matter how you voted. Prime Minister Your feet. Just, um, I think it was Chifley. <laughs> um, so, uh, or, or actually, it might have been. Um, was it Curtin? Anyway, it was a Labour. Uh, it was a it was a Labour leader. Um, Gotta love Labour. So so, but that that was that was across the board. That but Pauline Hanson was still in that mould. I don't think she is anymore. I'm not quite sure where she is. I think you've got to take account of the fact that Mark Latham, there are who isn't that of... sort of person, leads the party. There are a lot, lot of South ethnic Wales.
1: minorities who love One Nation and Pauline Hanson in particular, and have done for a while.
0: Yeah, well, so she her original sort of fights were with Aboriginal welfare, and not welfare per se to Aborigines, but welfare they might get that other people didn't get. So it was an equity sort of argument, which resonated with a lot of people, and there may have been some racism under that, but I think it was more uh, uh, what about meism. Um,
1: you don't then, think it was uh, welfare for need as opposed to identity?
0: Um, yeah, I think that's where she was coming from, um, but you know. I wouldn't swear that a lot of her supporters weren't nursing some racial grievances. And then that sort of played into, then she she went after the, when she went into parliament, she went after Asian immigration to a certain extent. Uh, And where she comes from, you know, we'd had big waves of uh, Vietnamese and Cambodian uh, immigration, uh, which, you know, people felt they were prepared to work for, it was white Australia again. The, the, The worry mostly about people overseas coming here was that they'd undercut wages and conditions. And they'd take things away from the Australians. Which isn't racist, it's protectionist. Um, well, I guess the sort of racism one needs to be careful of is, is attributing particular characteristics to someone because they're a member of a race unjustly. Um, There are some characteristics, you know, for example, if you're Kenyan, you're likely to be black. No one's going to say you're racist for saying that. Mm. Um, But if you say, well, if you're Kenyan, you're stupid, well, that's obviously not justified. Um, So, yeah, um, I think probably you're right that the hardworking attribute was justified, that all migrant groups tend to be like that. They come over... They've got nothing to lose, everything to gain, and they do whatever they have to do to get ahead and cement themselves. Um, So that's not racist, but perhaps thinking that they're somehow going to steal something from you um, that they don't deserve, Mm. I think you're starting to verge on it. But anyway, those groups certainly saw her as racist, Uh, and the Liberal Party's association with her meant that the Liberal Party suffered in Brisbane and suburbs like Sunnybank, where you look at the size of the houses and you say, this ought to be safe Liberal territory, but it's not. Because those groups uh, saw the Liberals associating with Pauline Hanson said that's racism. So Pauline had a big problem with that. But, you know, Mark Latham, he doesn't fit into those characteristics. He's a free trader. I think Pauline um, herself
1: has also evolved since then.
0: I think she might have. You know, she's been around for... So she won her seat in 1988. We're now 24 years on.
1: And and I hope that every single one of our politicians is able 30, to four. mature and to 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 say, you know what, I was wrong, or maybe not that black bluntly, them or for at least to be able to say, you know what, there's a better way. Um, I've I've reconsidered my position, oh, and that, that wasn't as important as I thought it was. Oh.
0: I don't want to state this as a fact but I think it would be interesting and I think I've heard her talking about it to talk about her experience in jail and how it might have changed her. Mm. So, you know, those sorts of things and she would have come up, being in jail, she would have come up against a whole lot of Indigenous people because, you know, they are a large percentage of the, the jail population. You just can't prison. get around it, disproportionate. Mm. And that's a that's something that no one's... Got any right to? Won't um, be anything but ashamed about. But I, I, I think I, I, I think she may. I think you're right. I think Pauline has has matured. Um,
1: I hope I don't get to 60 or 70 and uh, am still as hard nosed as I was decades earlier. I hope I soften.
0: Oh, she's still pretty tough. But you know, I think nobody the,
1: would accuse her of being soft. The
0: party's broad, and she's softened. Um, I'm still not sure how democratic it is in terms of its internal workings. And how much of a mass movement it is, yeah. or how much it's really centred around the what uh, are their strengths? What,
1: what's, what is a right-wing voter uh, going to be looking for when they choose One Nation as their wow. as their number one vote?
0: Because it's more a cult of personality. The other person I haven't mentioned is Malcolm Roberts, who is you know very free trade uh, and open markets, and who has particular positions on COVID and on um, um climate? climate change which there's a large proportion of the conservative base holds hmm. um so if you're voting for pauline to a certain extent he's not up for election this time around but to a certain extent you're voting to keep a structure in place that will bring brand. malcolm back pauline doesn't buy into those arguments not that i've noticed uh right. oh she doesn't sorry she doesn't cover it Sorry, she does not it um... so, so that's probably, <laughs> given that people don't vote for the entire party platform, right. because no one in their right mind would. Uh, there's just too much there and most of it won't get implemented anyway. You vote for the, the sort of the headline things. So, yeah, there's a lot of people going to say, yep, she stands up for us because she's against vaccine mandates. Uh, if we want to hold the government or the opposition because they've both been in it together, accountable for some of the miscalculations mm, mm. on COVID policy, then Pauline's one way of doing it. So I suspect that would be the really big pit.
1: Um, are there any of the minor parties, any of the minor freedom parties, which distinguish themselves from One Nation in any particular policy area?
0: Yeah, OK. Um, so, so if we deal with the UAP, because it's a bit similar to Pauline, it's kind of Pauline with a couple of coal mines and royalties from the the Chinese. Um, So it's a personality cult around Clive Palmer. Uh, Clive's got much less personal pulling power than Pauline, Um, but he's got a lot more money. Um, And politics is kind of his passion. I was gonna say hobby, but I think it's more than that. Um, So he's spending a lot of money He's a bigger than life personality. He's got a bit of the Donald Trump ability to say outrageous things mm. that get people excited and talking about him. And while most people don't like him, he doesn't need most people to like him to potentially get a seat in the Senate, which is where he's aiming for. Um, so Clive has been very much uh, freedom, 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 uh, which is about COVID. Um, he's also free markets and, and so on. But I'm not sure how deeply filled out his policy um, prescription is. Um, I think it's pretty much what Clive feels on any particular day. Mm-hmm. Um, String of thought bubbles. Yeah, but he's he's the kind of respectable rascal. Yeah, you know, there's, there's, there's a fair bit of the Trump about him. Mm. Um, and um, so, yeah, I mean, he'll be... Again, he'll be fighting over the COVID vote with Pauline. Um, I've been told that some Liberal Party polling shows that uh, he might actually get into the Senate, but Hmm. I'm a bit surprised.
1: Craig Kelly's running in the lower house, UAP, in New South Wales, as the leader of the uh, United Australia Party. Does he have a chance?
0: Um, He could in Hughes. Um, It's it's an outer metropolitan seat, um, which has a lot of the sort of people we've been talking about who are... Heartland for Liberal Party, who are feeling that the Liberal Party is no longer representing their interests. Um, so, Craig, you know, he's a, again, he's he's a man who is capable of creating a, a fuss and a scene and yeah. and getting publicity. Uh, he's you know extremely um, uh, vocal and persuasive on the issues. I think he is anyway, mm. on the issues he talks on. He's a bit of a terrier. Yep. um he's off to one side as far as the mainstream media is concerned they think he's a bit mad although everything he's said uh about facts that I've checked has checked out yeah um but that doesn't necessarily matter in today's world so what about he might win that he might win that seat
1: liberal Democrats let's talk about the liberal Democrats option around the nation they seem to be putting up some pretty good senate candidates
0: yeah so so out of these minor parties they're the one that i'm most confident looks like a genuine party not a personality cult
1: i kind of agree with
0: that um so they've got branch structures um, they have centralized governance mechanisms um, they select their candidates off some sort of membership ballot Um, they have a policy platform that's been determined by the members. Um, they've got a broad membership, uh, which is a, it skews a bit younger, actually, than um, uh, some of the others. Uh, so One Nation skews older, Liberal Party skews older. and I'm pretty sure the UAP would, but I'm not aware of any statistics I can uh, pick my hat on. But I know the Lib Dems skew a bit, bit younger. Um, They've only, you know, if they get 3% of the vote in an election, they're doing well. Um, I think they got about 1.5% last election. So, you know, again, I don't think they're going to win any House of Rep seats, but they've got some prospects in the Senate, um, particularly in Queensland, where they've got Campbell Newman, former State Premier, running for them. And um, Campbell will point out to you that Even when he lost the state election in uh, 2015, he had a larger first preference vote than anyone since has got either winning or losing. Uh, And there was some polling done maybe six, eight months ago showing that uh, if he was in state politics, he'd be the most favoured person to be leader of the opposition. So he's still got a large following out there. Uh, To win in the Senate, you don't need 50% of the vote. You just, Mm. as I said, need a quota of 14. I think he's got quite a good chance. If he can can keep ahead of United Australia Party and get their preferences, then I think he probably wins on the back of uh, preferences from Amanda Stoker, who's the last candidate on the LNP ticket. And I think that with Campbell running, he's going to steal some votes from the the LNP. Their vote will be down a bit. So she's the one at risk, uh, I think. What he might get, plus UAP, gets him in front of her. Her preferences go to him. So you he think gets Pauline's
1: him. a shoe-in in Queensland?
0: Um, well, unless she gets starved of second preferences. You know, Campbell might starve her of second preferences. Depends on the deals mm. that are done. Mm. You know, it really, it, it really is that sort of touch and go.
1: John Radek in New South Wales?
0: Well, just before we finish with with Newman, he's been quite strong on the vaccine mandates as well. Mm. Um, So he's competing with UAP and Pauline on that. I guess the thing that that he brings, and and that the LDP has that the others don't, is that they're more a cosmopolitan party. They're not cosmopolitan in their outlook. They're nationalist. You know, they believe that a nation isn't just lines on a map, Mm. uh, that it's a, a state of mind, that being Australian doesn't mean that you've just hopped off a plane at the airport and you're here. Um uh, so they're not the what Mark Latham or no not anyway, what they call the anywheres, they're the somewheres. Uh, but, you know, Campbell, smaller liberal, um so on social issues he's fairly you know, he's, he wasn't against gay marriage, for instance. Um and the L D P, you know, I think you'd find a That's actually a going very to be strong his
1: potential Achilles heel is while he's probably got the same uh, social conservatism as Clive Palmer and Pauline Hanson, he's well known as not being against some of those issues, which doesn't mean he's in favour of, but it's interpreted as he's in favour
0: of. That gives him an appeal over and above the... So if you're someone who thinks that you're pretty socially tolerant and liberal, um, but you're appalled at vaccine mandates... Uh, that gives him a point of difference yeah, from okay. Pauline and Clive, which Pauline and Clive don't have from each other. Mm. Um, so, you know, I think those sorts of things fly, you know. And, and the, the, LDP, the LDP get their votes uh, in places like the inner city, believe it or not. Uh, in Queensland, they're strong on the Gold Coast. Mm-hmm. Um, they're strong in some country areas as well. Um, and I'm not quite sure exactly what drives these things. I don't think there's any one demographic that they get, but there's a sort of, there's a, a cluster of people anywhere you go who are basically libertarian in the, the US sense. So, mm. you know, just leave me alone, let me do what I want to do. Um, and that's the way everyone ought to, to live their lives. Um, so that's where the social liberalism comes into
1: it. I'm fairly sympathetic to that sentiment. Yeah.
0: Well, they're, they're, they're not, they're not conservative. They're they're genuinely liberal, but liberal in the the classical liberal sense. And the difference between that and the conservative is the conservative is more invested in the institutions, um, whereas the classical liberal is less invested in the institutions. However, compared to the socialist or the Marxist, uh, who wants to rip the institutions down, these two are still relatively close to each other.
1: This is, um, I mean, certainly with my audience, that's. Conservative Christians, largely. Um, it, it, it's the it's the thing I, I want to explain is that uh, right now the battles we are fighting, we need uh, we need like those battles have been fought and lost. Abortion, gay marriage, um, euthanasia. Yep. Those those issues aren't issues we're fighting. Um, it's now beyond looking to government for solutions and looking to us for solutions. Therefore, especially because of that, but also because the battles are now on liberty and freedom, um, that is where we need libertarian governments like Mm. the LDP to maximise our freedom, win these battles that we're fighting now, Mm. which also consequently help us better fight those battles that have been lost we can better as communities as christians and congregations be solutions to those cultural problems mm. the government ha- doesn't have to solve everything but what we do need is a government who will give us the ability to say the truth yeah freedom of conscience religious liberty yeah. and and essentially articulate persuasive arguments in those issues where government can no longer be the solution, or at least in in the foreseeable future. But that's, it's a bit nuanced and sophisticated when you're just thinking, oh, but he's he's in favour of abortion or gay marriage.
0: Yeah, well, and what gets in the way is a lot of Christians are absolutist. Um, You know, and it's, to a certain extent, it's inherent in Christianity, because Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and life, and no man comes to the Father but through me. Um, And so we've had doctrinal differences um, and Catholics think they're the only ones going to heaven Um, and Protestants think the Pope's the Antichrist, Um, although they take a more charitable view on Catholics' chances of getting to heaven, but still huge differences. Um, And we've also had a long history of trying to force other people to accept our doctrines and When you're in a position of power, which we have been in the Western world up until probably the 90s, Mm. um, then you could kind of have the luxury of uh, freedom of speech and letting people blaspheme, for example. Um, That's not something that um, they ought to be allowed to do. Uh, Whereas, you know, I think the authentically Christian point of view and the one that actually helps us all is Everyone's free to sin. Um, Jesus never said to anyone, you have to do what I say. He said, this is what you should do. If you don't want to do it, that's fine, go your own way. And now that we're not in a position of power, uh, those Christians who think they can enforce some sort of Christian morality or ideology or belief on other people have to understand that, no, no, that, that's not feasible. It was never right, but it's not feasible. Mm. And the Christian way of dealing with these things is to be like Jesus, to say, you're free to put me up on a cross and crucify me if that's what you want to do under your laws. But you're not going to get the benefit from that. You're actually going to you know, put yourself in yeah. He would have said, "I think eternal damnation. Christians are a bit scared of eternal damnation, the concept of hell these days." But Jesus wasn't. No, that's um, true. So, you know, people have got to realise that we have got a vested interest in free will being accessible to all, and you know, free will is a key Christian doctrine. Even if Jesus didn't enunciate it very clearly, Saint Paul certainly did. Mm. Um, well, and Garden
1: Eden, the Garden of Eden certainly did.
0: Well, the, yeah. the choice was theirs. Uh, yeah. Do well, those. it was. Yes, you're right. Yeah. Um, here's, here's
1: the boundaries. Stay in them or transgress them. Your choice. It's not an electric fence.
0: And I guess the other side of it is that there's almost a symbiotic relationship between people who do the wrong thing and people who do the right thing. In that you wouldn't have had crucifixion and Easter without. Pontius Pilate and uh, uh, the chief priests and Pharisees
1: deeply existential questions.
0: Um, so you know, in a sense, God's working out of His salvation. In the world requires some people to misuse their free will because you wouldn't need to be saved if people. That's hadn't.
1: actually the really right way of phrasing that. Misuse their free will. Um, it's uh, it's been. Yeah, I mean, this is a a big topic as well, which we won't indulge too much. No,
0: well, the thing...
1: But freedom has a purpose. It's not for indulgence. It's for service.
0: Well, if you weren't free, then you couldn't freely accept God. You'd be Mm -hmm. slaves, and that's not what we believe he's after. Um, And the the cardinal sin, I think, in um, in the Garden of Eden was... So it's not just any tree. It's the tree of the knowledge of fruit, uh, of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, which is God's prerogative. Mm. So what they did was put themselves in a position to judge, which is God's judgment, uh, you know, God's God's position. position. Mm. Uh, And they then went from being, uh, you know, Milton's Paradise Lost is interesting in all of this, they kind of went from being not truly human to being human. Um, in a sense, we can't be redeemed unless we have the capacity of strain. straying. Yep. So the Garden of Eden, in some ways, you look at it, it was a necessity, and that's that's the kind of doctrine that Milton's got in his paradise lost. Interesting. Um, and when they leave the garden, they go to work, yep. which basically he sees as a... A good, not a bad. Well, yeah. Anyway.
1: Well, there was work in the garden. Um, anyway, you might use that clip for something else. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, sometimes it's just fun to have the conversation yeah. uh, socially. Um, Catter's Australian Party? Oh. Yeah, OK, Catter's.
0: Um, so, is interesting. In a sense, it, I was going to say cult personality, but it wasn't really. It was just an independent... So, you know, he became the independent member for Kennedy. Um, And um, I'm just trying to think, when Catter's Australia Party actually became a party, but I think it might have been after Pauline Hanson. Um, And you might notice a lot of the minor parties were named after someone. Vanity names. Um, Well, it's because the person had the brand, not the party. Yeah. So, you know, if you called it the uh, Central Queensland People's Party, Big deal. Catter's Australian Party? Oh, yeah, that's the guy in the big white hat. Clever marketing, but... Oh, well, you a, know, it on was on Darren Hinch's it, um, Justice Party and... Jackie um, Lambie and... Network and, and Xenophon. And he, Xenophon, yeah. He actually yeah. changed his name, ultimately, of the party. but so, so that was part of the marketing strategy. Uh, and that kind of signalled, this is about a personality. Bob was more organic in that he was there. He'd been there for quite a long time. And then it sprang out of it. Uh, His son Robbie runs the the state party but I think without having studied its constitution that it does have some democratic um, uh, structures and and some sort of way of determining policy which isn't just what Bob thought was a good idea when he woke up that morning. Um, And it also fills a gap that the LNP left when the Liberal Party and the National Party merged. So the big risk when the Liberals and the Nationals merged was that people who had voted National because they didn't like the Liberals would find they had nowhere to go, that Liberals would kind of colonise the Liberal National Party. And the Liberal National Party is actually a division of the Liberal Party, even though some of its members sit in the National Party uh, Party Party room down in Canberra um so uh cat has actually i think picked up some of those people who were disenchanted when the national party moved in with the liberal party um but he's very geographically confined so yeah you know um he'll get up no two ways about that yeah um will there be a successor to him because he's I think he's about 78 or something like that now. He can't have too many rounds left in him. Uh, and is there a chance of a Senate candidate? I wouldn't have thought so, but... Hmm. Um,
1: the Democratic Labour Party, are they nationwide?
0: I don't think so. and um, I don't think they're really the DLP that people in the 60s, 70s and 80s knew either. I think that's it's pretty much... Had its, had its day.
1: Shooters, Fishers, Farmers Party?
0: Um, yeah, they're, they're a party that will get some Senate votes in, in different uh, states. They don't have any sort of clear charismatic leader that I'm aware of. Mm. Um, they seem to be able to run contradictory policies side by side in state elections. Um, so I think they're more a protest party than anything else. Yep. Um, you know, there, there are certain voters and there are certain times when voters want to send a message to the major parties and they'll grab a minor party that's available to send that message. Uh, and they don't mean that they approve of that party, they mean they disapprove of the other parties. So I think the Shooters, Fishers and, um, whatever. Uh, fit into that kind of mould. So they were a way of sending the National Party principally, I think, in the last uh, New South Wales state election, a message they polled okay. Um, Do the parties
1: hear this message?
0: Oh, if you think you're going to lose a seat because of them, yeah. Of course you do. But is there any... um I mean, John Howard heard the One Nation message. I mean, that's what marginalised Pauline after so, 98. So here's
1: my worry, and you know, I th- that's a great example of, uh, of them hearing the message. What about the West Australian Liberal Party? They've been devastated, eviscerated, mm. um, and the rhetoric coming out of the party after that was that it was the fault of the Conservatives. Um, rather than acknowledging it was their lack of appeal to Conservatives which, which cost them that vote?
0: Um, if they don't hear the message then they'll stay irrelevant, and someone else will fill the vacuum because there's always going to be a place for right of centre views um, however they're defined in a, any particular context. Mm-hmm. So um, if they don't pick it up then someone else will uh, and you can look to Canada for examples of that, because the Progressive Conservatives there went down to I think two votes when Is that Kim an Campbell party was party like, name. Yeah, Progressive yeah. Conservatives. Well, that's because uh, conservative isn't an appealing name to a lot of people in the electorate because it says you're stuck in the past. And Robert Menzies, when he set up the Liberal Party, said we're not a conservative party; we're a Liberal Party because uh, we, you know, we look to the future. We're in favour of progress. Um, so there's always been. Uh, a little bit of... um, Marketing. Yeah, and and nervousness about being tagged as people who just want to preserve things. Uh, You know, in the UK, the Conservatives are the Conservatives, uh, and possibly partly because of the legacy of Margaret Thatcher, they're not seen as being necessarily holding on to the past. But anyway, in Canada, they call themselves the Progressive Conservatives. King Campbell was the leader, and they went down to two votes. Uh, you've now got a range of sort of right-wing parties there, and, and so on, that have filled some of the gaps that that they left. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So Western Australia, you know, the National Party might might fill the gap, might. Um, or if they keep losing, then the people who are doing Is the losing. The National losing.
1: Party contend in Australia, in Western Australia.
0: they the official opposition.
1: Ah. Okay. Uh,
0: So, yeah, um, eventually they'll get the message. You know, political parties, especially the ones that have been around a long time, have been there because they're capable of shifting and and reading the signs and not being marginalised for too long.
1: Yep. Well, hopefully hopefully the Liberal Party can read the tea leaves. Um, I don't think they'll do so in time for this election, but...
0: No, I I mean I, I think what so Morrison won a bare majority. And he was lucky to get there. And I think though that he's governed as though he was a minority government. And he's been very, very timid in how mm. he's governed. Um, and I contrast that with Peter Beattie in Queensland. So I think it was two thousand and no, in 1998, he won a um, minority government. He governed like he had a huge majority, even though he had a scandal with the Shepherdson Inquiry in the middle of it. 2001, he won 14 seat, I think it was, majority. Mm. Um, he didn't let it get in his way. He just ploughed ahead. Morrison hasn't. Um, and I think that's why he's not gonna win the next election.
1: If you, final question, if you were to somehow have Morrison's ear over dinner, quiet opportunity or or even a a long meeting and he basically gave you the ability to choose major innovations, changes of direction, policies, campaign strategies. If he said, Graham, we're going to lose without you, what do we have to do to win? and whatever you say, we're going to do it. What do you reckon would, if anything, could guarantee Morrison a victory at this next federal election?
0: I think he's probably beyond help um, because anything that he said, which was a radical change of direction would be interpreted by the electors as desperation. But let's say
1: he's got the ability to do a Peter Beattie mere culpa.
0: Well, he had to be doing it all the way along Um, And what he had to do was, he had to get that legislation through on religious discrimination, for example. He shouldn't have signed up to uh, net zero by 2050. He should have turned the conversation to the practicalities of uh, going um, all electric. Uh, And he should have pointed out the geopolitical realities, that it doesn't matter what we do with emissions in Australia, because if the Chinese and the Indians keep burning coal as they intend to, uh, then all we're doing is sending our emissions over there and, and re-importing them as, as goods. Um, and he should have been talking, and he should have had as part of his overall approach, defence, in a much stronger way, uh, because that is an ex- existential thing that we're in, uh, and it changes, as we're seeing with Ukraine, how you look at the issues of fossil fuel and, and power security. You know, we're sitting down here thinking, well, we've got the luxury to tinker around with our power. We don't. Um, so he would have been on those sorts of things. He would have been doing something about education. We have some of the same issues here that they've got in the US. It's not as bad, but it will be as bad. You know, it's, it's people being taught essentially cultural Marxism. It's kids being sexualized. Mm. by, you know, we used to regard sex education as something that parents were supposed to do 100% schools only stood in uh, to a certain extent they had to get the permission of the parents to talk about these things to kids now it's being incorporated all over in the curriculum yeah. uh, and children are getting the idea that somehow sex is far more important than it ought to be and that your sexuality is what defines you, it isn't what defines you mm. it's part of what defines you but it's not what defines you, it is not the major thing. So he, he should have been buying into, into the education argument. Uh, with COVID, uh, he should have had a much more transparent process. He probably shouldn't have got involved in that silly national cabinet, which just allowed the premiers to tell him what to do and then run back to their own states and criticise him for not doing enough. Uh, the federal government should have been far more parsimonious in the uh, handouts that it gave. There needed to be some support, but I think we would have got much better policy if there'd been less government around and people having to rely on their own resources because they would have pretty quickly decided that locking the whole economy down and having a gap year uh, wasn't the right way to deal with a disease which we knew after three or four months of statistics. It uh, wasn't the black plague. It wasn't even the Spanish flu. Uh, it wasn't. Normal flu, it was certainly, I'm, I'm not, not trying to minimise it. It was more serious than that. But the old traditional methods, uh, which was in fact laid down in the manuals as to how we ought to deal with the pandemic of isolating those people that were at highest risk and letting the rest get on, living their lives as they saw best, was the way to go. And that people should have been living as much as they could off their own resources. Uh, and that would have sharpened their minds in terms of how they... They ran their lives. Instead of that, he went along with the playbook that admittedly a lot of people in the Western, a lot of governments in the Western world did. But, yeah. you know, a lot of his base knew it was the wrong thing to be doing. They know it's the wrong thing to be, have done now. Uh, and it just plays into the perception that the, the government's weak. Yeah. Um, so, um, you know, there's, there's a number of things. Uh, if, I, if I were doing the budget, and I thought about this the other day, uh, we now have a supply side problem. Um, we've got people who want to spend money, but we don't have enough goods. Uh, we had a growing problem before of a decrease in uh, productivity, and that reflects in no increases in weight, no real increases in wages, or very, very small increases. That's because of a whole lot of regulation uh, that's happened in the economy, you know, some of it being paperwork regulation, others restricting businesses from what they can do. Mm-hmm. Um, I would have been looking to cut those, uh, maybe a, a Donald Trump program that for every one regulation you implement, you've got to cut 20 or... Two. What, was it only two? Yeah. I thought it was 10 or something like that. But he
1: far exceeded those goals. He
0: far exceeded, okay, all right, far exceeded it, but... Uh, that would have been part of it. I think I would have been radically looking to decrease company tax because basically the way company tax operates here is that the dividends get passed through and you pay at your own marginal rate. And if you don't have a marginal rate because you're too poor, then you get money back from the government for what the company paid. Um, so what stays in and gets uh, taxed at the... Uh, Company rate is basically the money that companies invest in themselves. Well, you take the company tax off, there'll be a lot more investment happening, you get a lot more growth in the economy. Mm. Um, And I would have been looking at ways of paying back the debt faster, trying to at least not grow the um, uh, public service, because again, the public service is a dead weight on growth in the economy, because it's redistributive. Now, you need redistribution in, in economies. But you don't want too much of the economy being involved in redistribution. You want as much being involved in production as you can. Um, and I probably, an, another policy would have been to extend accelerated depreciation. Basically say, say to businesses, depreciate at whatever rate you want. Again, that would encourage uh, investment because that would mean that you could go out and buy a tractor or you in your, your studio here. You could go and buy some equipment instead of depreciating it over three years or whatever the depreciation rate is in your industry, write it off next year. It comes straight off your tax. Um, from your point of view, there's a big benefit there and you can start earning money faster. And with the studio technology, it pretty much does need replacing every, every year. year. Right, <laughs> okay. Uh, from the government's point of view, yeah, you're not paying as much tax this year. In Next year, you're going to be paying more because you'll have lost that depreciation. Uh, so instead of you spreading the depreciation out over three years and them getting tax over three years, they'd miss out on tax this year, they'd get a lot more tax these two years. But yep. hopefully, because you'd had the confidence to go out and buy this, yep. you'd be making more money anyway, so they'd pick up the difference. And or you get to
1: survive yep. in order to pay tax. And, and
0: that would appeal to that small business mm. out of suburban Uh, aspirational class Mm. a lot of whom are are in businesses and they'd see the opportunities and they'd say thank goodness there's a government that cares about us so you know they they'd be some of the policies and I'd also wouldn't be in the budget I think I'd announce that I was going to um, um, immediately pass uh, he wouldn't get away with that immediately pass legislation in the next Parliament um, to outlaw vaccine mandates using the external power, affairs powers uh, and the corporation powers, uh, maybe it's the Pauline Hanson. I think
1: I think that would guarantee him a win alone. No, I think
0: it's too late now. I think it's too late. He's he's shot all his bolts. He hasn't yeah. shown the courage that he needs to show, and
1: um, yeah, he's he's talked him, painted himself into a corner, pretending that he can't.
0: I, I think just looking at him and. Josh Frydenberg together. Frydenberg fills his suit out, Morrison doesn't. There's just, I think, a bit of imposter syndrome with Morrison that there isn't with Frydenberg. Yeah. And I think that's, that's dogged Scotty from marketing. Yeah. All through his prime ministership that he never quite looks the part. He looks as though he's trying too hard to convince people, yeah. It just doesn't bring that gravitas with him. Yeah. That you know might be might be unfair, but that's what we look for from leaders. Yeah. Um, and that's one of the reasons we've got problems with our national security because the American president doesn't look or sound or act like a leader.
1: Yeah, he's no, no hard to take seriously.
0: And that's a problem Albanese's got too.